0: We pray, our Heavenly Father, You have recorded these words for our good, for our understanding, for our spiritual growth and nourishment. And so we pray that You would grant even now by Your Spirit that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest these words. All to Your honor and glory, that we may grow up into Him who is our Head, even Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We read of one death and one burial. Uh, I chose, I opted not to read uh, of Joseph's death, although we're going to lump that section in together as well. In other words, our passage this morning is two uh, funerals, two deaths. And and notice Jacob's last request. He he makes one final request right at the end of his life, verses 29 and 30 of chapter 49. It's a request he's made before. He's done this uh, with Joseph privately. He made Joseph swear. And now with the rest of his sons in the room, he makes the same request. Now he's got um, more witnesses. He's got more people... Uh, making this promise more people to hold accountable. He's just completed those prophecies of His 12 sons, uh, what the future holds for them, and now He's on His deathbed and about to breathe His last breath. And notice how specific He is about this request. He's, He's... He's 147 years old. Alright, I shouldn't do this. I'm going to do it anyway. i will give away my age. He's exactly 100 years older than I am. I can't remember yesterday. I can't remember specific conversations I had with my own kids yesterday. And then 147... Jacob is able to recount exactly where he wants to be. Where he wants to be buried. His geography, his memory is perfect. It's exactly precise even at 147 years old. 17 of which have been lived there in Egypt. Notice what he says, verses 29 and 30. I want to be buried in the cave. It's the cave that uh, Abraham, my grandfather, bought. Oh, and by the way, Abraham, my grandfather, and my grandmother Sarah are both buried there. Oh, and by the way, my parents, Isaac and Rebecca, are both buried there. Oh, and Leah, my wife, one of my wives, is buried there. There, He he knows exactly who's in that cave. He knows exactly who's been buried there. He knows exactly where it is, where it came from. Grandfather Abraham bought it from a Hittite and then he rattles off. It's in the field. It's to the east of Mamre. Don't go west of Mamre. Don't go north. Don't go south. It's east. It used to belong to Ephraim the Hittite, but Granddad bought it from him so that he could have a burial place. There's a cave, there's a field with a cave in it east of Mamre in Canaan, the field of Machpelah. I mean, he's amazingly precise for his surprisingly old age. But that's where he wants to be buried. That's his request. That's his, his final request. The last thing he says on his deathbed after pronouncing all of these prophecies over his sons, the last thing he says is, now be sure and take me and bury me in that cave with my people. Carry my body back there and put me in that exact precise cave. Joseph makes a similar request down at the end of chapter 50. Verses 24 and 25. uh, Joseph makes the same kind of request. I'm about to die. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that He swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. Carry my bones from here. And then He died. Joseph envisions... His bones being carried back to this exact cave, to this same place where dad, granddad, and now great-granddad are all buried. He wants to make sure that when God does come and visit Israel, He'll be buried there in the family burial plot. And you can tell even from their request, Jacob expects to go right away. Joseph expects to go later. He expects that when God comes and gets you out of Israel, then carry my bones with me. So Joseph isn't demanding, now look, as soon as I die, you better be traveling back yet again. It would have taken a couple of months to make this journey, to make this trip. Joseph anticipates going later, his bones being carried, not his body. Why would Joseph and Jacob make this request? Why would this be their final request? What would grant them, I don't know, at some level maybe even the audacity to, to demand this? I mean, you know, you're, not, you're not putting a casket on a plane and flying them from Los Angeles to New York. You're, you're, you're carrying, you're pulling on a cart. It's going to take months to get there. It's going to take months to get home. It's a long journey. It's hot. There's desert involved. What would make them ask this of their family? There's really only one thing. They believed God's promises. They believed God's word. And they wanted to make sure that they communicated to their family. We believe that what God has promised, He will do. God has promised to give that land. He promised it to Abraham. He promised it to Isaac. He's promised it to Jacob. He has assured and reassured us over and over and over again that that land is going to belong to us. Therefore, since I know He's going to fulfill that promise, I want to be buried there. That's essentially what Joseph says, right? Look at the confidence he has in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 50. Notice, twice he uses the word visit. Now look, we're, we're southern. Uh, visit becomes a term sometimes for, I'll swing by when I'm walking in the neighborhood and stop in for a Visit. Uh, I'll come over uh, in time for tea and we'll visit. It's a, it's a, it's a let's get together and talk um, and just have a conversation with each other. That's kind of what we mean by the word visit. That's not what the Bible means by the word visit. Anytime the Bible uses the word visit in relation to God, you better pay attention. In fact, notice what he does. In verse 24, he says, God will visit you. And then in verse 25, he says, surely visit you. The the Hebrew way of doing this is fun. Um, They don't say surely. They say visit. So he will visit, visit you. So in verse 24, it's he will visit you. And in verse 25 is he will visit, visit you. It's a way to sort of emphasize and, and, and make it a, a sure and certain thing this is going to happen. In other words, Joseph communicates his confidence in the promises of God. He communicates his confidence and trust in the Word of God. God has said, therefore He will. God has promised us that land, therefore that land will be ours. And when that day comes, y'all, Take me with you when God comes to visit you, because He will surely He will visit visit you one day. Now you have to at least scratch your head just a little bit. Jacob and Joseph both die in Egypt. They don't get to see with their eyes the fulfillment of the promise that God has made. But as we said a few weeks back, they don't really need the eyes in their head to see the fulfillment of that promise. They see with their heart. They see by faith. They see because God has promised and they trust that promise. They both die in Egypt. They're not in the promised land. They're not in Egypt. Canaan. And for that matter, how much land do the Israelites actually own in the promised land? Well, it's the very plot of land that Jacob so precisely described for us at his death. We have a field. There's a cave in that field. Granddad bought it from Ephraim the Hittite. My people are buried there. That's all we have. We don't have acres and acres and acres of land. We don't have a a state. We don't have a county. We have a field. But that was enough for them. They had a family burial plot. That was all they had of the land that was still promised to them. Although we do get to see many fulfillments along the way, right? We've pointed out time and time again when God said this will be the case and lo and behold, it was. God had promised that, that they would get land. Well, look, they actually have some land. God would promise they would be a blessing to the nations and they've actually been a blessing to uh, Egypt and to the nations. God promised to Jacob when when Jacob was leaving Canaan to go down... To live in Egypt, Joseph had finally revealed himself to his brothers and said, Look, I'm alive. Your father's alive. Let's get all your people and y'all come live here. We'll get you this land of Goshen and you can live there. Jacob, on his way to Egypt, before he left the promised land, just as he got to that border, he stopped and he worshiped and he offered a sacrifice. And God told him, It's okay, go to Egypt. You're going to see Joseph. Oh, and by the way, Joseph, he'll close your eyes in death. Well, here's a mini-fulfillment of yet another promise that God has made. The last thing that Jacob in his dim, weak eyes can see as he closes his eyes in death is Joseph hovering over him, weeping, mourning. Joseph closes Jacob's eyes. It's out of a a deep faith and trust in the God of promise that Jacob and Joseph make this final request. We see not only their last request, but we also get two long looks at the last enemy. You know how it goes. You know there are only two guarantees in life. Death and taxes. But you know that... The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is appointed for all men to die once, and after that, the judgment. You know that funerals are real. You know that death is inescapable. You know that in the month of October, I think it is, you'll see sports teams all over, baseball, football, they'll add pink to their uh, color scheme in some way, shape, or form for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. There's this push to cure cancer. There's this push to cure all these diseases. I don't know anybody that has started a death cure foundation. Because we all know you can't avoid it. It will come to all of us. We will all one day close our eyes in death. We can't prolong this life forever. And quite honestly, we shouldn't want to. Jacob and Joseph face that last enemy. Death itself. Death is that that final reminder that Adam really did disobey God. Death is that final reminder that we have inherited a sinful nature from Him. The wages of sin is death. And all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Death is that reminder that I really have violated God's law. I really do commit cosmic treason. I really am guilty. How do you know we're guilty from the womb? Well, we all die. Death comes to all men. And then at the end of chapter 49, Jacob is gathered to his people. His people yes, are buried in the cave at Machpelah back in Canaan, but that's not what that phrase means. His people are in eternity with Christ. His people are in heaven. His people are not actually on this earth. His people are those people who have died in faith and gone before Him and are united to Christ and who at their death, as we just confessed a few minutes ago, our souls go straight heaven yes our body is put in the ground yes our body will see decay but for the believer your soul cannot die it goes straight into eternity with Christ it goes straight into the presence of Christ your Savior Jacob breathes his last and he dies and notice Joseph's reaction in verse 1 you really have this sense Joseph falls on his father's face and just weeps and kisses him. It, it's this image, and I don 't know how accurate this or, it is or not, but I just picture a man really on the brink of completely losing. It. I mean, like he's absolutely falling apart. He, he was the favorite, right? He had been the favorite son and and he loved his dad. For the first 17 years of Joseph's life, he was his dad's favorite. And his dad did everything he could to make sure Joseph was safe and cared for and made to feel special. For the last 17 years of Jacob's life, Joseph returned the favor, brought Jacob to himself made his dad feel welcome and safe and provided for him in every way he could. But Joseph isn't the only one mourning. It's it's actually all of Egypt that weeps and mourns at the death of Jacob. Notice verse 3. First of all, it takes 40 days to embalm Jacob. Something that apparently Joseph's uh, personal physicians did. Rather than turning the work over to the religious leaders in Egypt, Joseph had his physicians embalm his father. A process that would have taken uh, 40 days. And then the Egyptians wept, uh, mourned him for him another 30 days. For a total of 70 days, they mourned the death of Jacob a Hebrew foreigner that's only lived there for 17 years that shows you the the respect and the love that they had for Joseph incidentally the required length of mourning when a Pharaoh dies 72 days so Jacob's honor is just two days short of the mourning period for a pharaoh, The honor that they give to Joseph and therefore to Jacob as they weep and mourn the loss of this patriarch. And then there's a funeral procession. It's huge. It's hundreds, maybe even thousands of people it's Joseph and his brothers, uh, government officials, the elders of the land, elders in, in Pharaoh's, leaders in Pharaoh's household, not to mention the, the military escort. Perhaps it was protection. Perhaps it was to make sure they came back. Uh, perhaps it was sheer honor for Jacob. And Jacob's body is embalmed prepared for this lengthy trip. Organs removed, fluids drained, body all wrapped up, made ready for a long trip through the heat. His body's going to decay. He's prepared for that physically. He's lived 147 years. That's... He says, it's not nearly as long as my father. He says, my life has been short. At 130, he told Pharaoh, my life has been short. 130. How many people live to see 100 these days? And he's 130 now, 147 years old. He's obviously strong. You you remember he wrestled? Oh, with God. Oh, and won the wrestling match. He traveled at a hundred and thirty from Canaan to Egypt. This is a strong. The point is, this is not you know me. This is not some weak, feeble, muscleless, tired, worn out guy who can't fight anybody. This is a guy who's wrestled with God, and yet when death comes, you can't fight it. You can't stop it. He can't say, Well, I can, you know, I've wrestled with God. I got this. You know, we use language like accidental death, we use language like untimely death. You realize there's no such thing. That God is absolutely sovereignly in control of every hair on your head, every sparrow that falls from the sky, and the day of your death has been long appointed. By him. Look, one thing I've done—I'm always nervous about people that might listen to sermons. I think I'm okay, but I've—I've I've, um, performed funerals in the past where I was literally told, "You got five minutes." Graveside, no funerals are graveside only. You've got, and they're literally watching their watch. Be quick. This is 70 days of mourning. An entire nation weeping. And then they get to Canaan. And then when they get into the promised land, they stop. And seven more days of mourning. We would do well to learn how to weep. We would do well to learn how to mourn at funerals. Funerals are reminders that, yes, death is real. They're reminders that this world is not the way it was created. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus wept, standing outside of a tomb. Oh, that we would learn how to weep and mourn. Grief is not godless as long as we grieve as those who have hope rather than those who are hopeless Joseph's body also would decay he even admits as much carry not my body up to Canaan carry my bones because it's entirely possible that by the time God comes to visit visit you then it all that I'll be left all that will be left of me will be bones I mean all my skin will be decayed I'll be you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, all of that. all that's going to be left of me will be bones, and so carry those bones with you. Joseph is embalmed and put in a a coffin, but notice there's something missing. Joseph was never buried in Egypt. He was embalmed he was he was put in a, a sarcophagus of sorts, a, a coffin of, of some sort. But he was always ready to go. Whenever the day would come that God would come and deliver Israel from Egypt, nobody had to stop and go, wait, time out. Quick, a shovel. We've got to dig Joseph up. Joseph is ready, even in his death, to travel with his people back to the promised land. Joseph and Jacob, you and I, will one day face this final enemy, this last enemy. We can fight off the flu. We can fight off sickness and disease. We can fight off cancer. We can fight off this, that, and the other thing. This death, you can't win. You you can't fight off death. These patriarchs faced the same end that you and I faced. The last enemy is death itself. We see their last request. We see the last enemy. But notice that death doesn't actually get the last word. It's true. We all will face death. Your own, but also the death of parents, of siblings, of children, of spouse. And that we will, unless Christ comes back first, we will all... One day, breathe our last. Pull our feet up into our bed and breathe our last and be gathered to our people. The world in which we live, for many, death just seems so final. At best, they don't know what comes next. At worst, this is all there is, so eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. And after that, all that's left is whatever I've written, whatever has been recorded, nothing of me will remain. You and I, however, understand that there is a life that is yet to come. That actually for the believer, death doesn't get the last Word for that matter. Notice the way Genesis, the whole sort of big picture of Genesis. Notice how it ends. This book so full of promises, all the way back from Genesis three fifteen, a promise of the seed of the woman to destroy the seed of the serpent. Promises for people, place, and uh, possessions, and um, God's presence, and all of those things. Notice how the book ends. The very last word in Genesis, in English and in Hebrew, by the way, is Egypt. <coughs> Pretend for a second, you don't know the rest of the story. All right, Paul Harvey hasn't come to see you yet. All you're doing is you're, you have no idea what the Bible's about. You're reading along and the last thing you run into is the last word of Genesis, Egypt. You're supposed to feel a sense of despair. I think Moses wants you to feel a sense of... Wait a minute. I mean, it didn't happen that way? They're not in the promised land? It's it's so like that boy in the bed and the princess bride. Wait, wait, Who gets Humperdinck? You mean they don't get him? How can this book possibly end like that? How can Genesis possibly end with Joseph, this model patriarch to you and me, dying in Egypt, period? Now you have to wait for Moses to write the second book. You're supposed to feel that sense of tension, of despair, of fear. Because as of right now, God's promises have not yet been fulfilled. It's supposed to be an ominous end to the book of Genesis. Egypt is the last word in the book. But it's not the last word in the story. Because Jacob and Joseph die in faith knowing that one day God will visit visit his people and bring them out of Egypt and take them to the promised land the name of the next book the way out as soon as you turn the page from the end of Genesis into the beginning of Exodus you're prepared Exodus that means the way out That means, how do I get out of here? That means a bunch of people leaving one place and going to another place. And just like that, you're filled with hope all over again. Jacob and Joseph trusted that God would make good on His promises. It was was precisely because they trusted in God's Word that they demanded being carried up to Canaan. God said He would give them that land, and because He has said it, He will do it, and I trust that promise So take me with you when you go. Jacob says, take me now because I want to be there when the promised Messiah, when the seed of the woman that was promised centuries ago is finally born to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. I want to be in that place when the resurrection finally happens and Christ defeats sin and death and He too comes out of the grave redeeming the grave, this cave, even for me, I want to be in that place. I want to be identified with those people. I don't want to be identified with the Egyptians. I don't have an inheritance here among these people. I want to go where my inheritance will always be. You understand that for the believer, death doesn't get the last word. You understand that for the Christian, death is not the end. It's merely a portal. It's a doorway. It's the way you get from life in this world where death does reign into the next where death cannot touch you. It's just a passageway from life in this world to life in the world to come. Jacob and Joseph wanted to be buried in Canaan because they knew that the end of their lives on this earth was not the end of their lives. They wanted to be with God's people, that there was more to come, and they wanted to be there when the more finally came. Do you know that reality? That your death is not the end? that your death is not the the end of your soul, that you actually have a soul and it goes straight, as we confessed just a few minutes ago, it goes straight into the presence of Christ. And when Christ returns, your body that that decays in that coffin in the ground and and returns to ashes and dust, that it's one day going to be put back together again. A perfect, sinless body reunited with your soul And you'll dwell body and soul. Your eternity is not on a cloud with a harp, some disembodied spirit. Your soul and body are reunited again when Christ comes back and raises all His people from the saints. I mean, from the grave. All His saints from the grave. The unbelievers, of course, are raised and sent to eternal punishment. While we as believers are gathered with Christ. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage first. um, Sort of an an aside I guess. In many ways Joseph serves as a model. For living a godly life in a pagan culture. Joseph lives. A hundred and ten years. Ninety three of which were spent in Egypt. Now. Think about that for a second. He couldn't meet on Sundays for worship. There was no Sunday school. There was nobody teaching him the Bible. He didn't have family worship. He wasn't reading the Bible together as a family, sitting around the breakfast table or the dinner table or the bedtime table or whatever. He didn't have God's Word open to read. And yet through those 93 years, we have no glimpse of glaring sin in his life. I think Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does that for us. To encourage you. You live in a non-Christian, a-Christian pagan culture. And you can live the Christian life in a pagan culture. We're to be encouraged by the fact that Joseph has done it. Daniel is another. That you really can live a godly life in the midst of a pagan society. Uh, Second application. um, Like Jacob and Joseph, you and I are sojourners. You and I are not in the land that will forever be ours, at least not as it stands now. That there's coming a time when Christ will return and and this earth is destroyed by fire apparently and recreated and we live in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ in our new body for eternity. We're sojourners in this land. So in many ways, this passage says, live like sojourners. Live like people who are not trying to gather up treasures on this earth, but instead are investing in the life that is yet to come. Live like people who recognize I live here and I must live here and I must bring honor and glory to Christ while I'm here, but this is not my home. And I long for a day when I'm in my true home with Christ. A third application. It's sort of the same as that one. We're sojourners. And This is not our home. Therefore, Not live like it, die like it. Jacob and Joseph die in faith, always longing for the life to come. And even the things they do, embalm my body, put me in a box, take me here, put me with these people, it all reflects a hope for the life to come. It reflects a longing for the world that is yet to come if you're trusting in Christ this morning for your salvation, you can live and you can die knowing full well that when He comes, He'll reunite your body and soul and give you a place there among His people and your people. It means we can die well. It means the grave doesn't get the last word. It means death doesn't get the last laugh. It may speak, and it may speak loudly, and it may be painful, but it does not get the last word in your life. For that matter, you too can be buried. Because you're already united to Christ who has already been buried and redeemed that tomb for you. You die in hope, not hopeless. Finally, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. Maybe you're not a a Christian. Maybe you're um, thinking to yourself, I'm not sure that God could or would save me. I'm just not convinced. I mean, I I don't have evidence to the fact that, that God really would redeem me. This passage urges you to trust in the promises of God. God promises that all who put their faith and trust in Christ as their Redeemer will be saved. God gives us in His Word, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You and your household, believe those promises. He has said, if you will cast your cares on me, He'll care for you. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ for your salvation, run to the cross. He's redeemed your life. He'll redeem your life, your death, your burial, and you long for a day. When your body is raised, reunited with your soul, to live with Him. Let's pray together.